You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome today. Uh, delighted to welcome you to the Longroom Hub um, and to the first event from Human Plus, Human-Centric Approaches to Technology. Um, delighted today to, to kick off the, the Tech Talk series. Um, today, what we thought we would do is have three presentations around the particular topic of uh, ethics and the ethical dimension in human-centric AI. Um, you're all really welcome today. We're, we're working in hybrid mode. So here today we have, uh, as, a, as a collaborative group, we're here in, in the Long Room Hub, but also online, we have many guests joining us and you're very welcome. Um, just a little bit about the, the Human Plus program. Um, it's pioneering in the sense that um, Co-funded on the European Commission's Mary Sadowski's uh, Sadowski Curie uh, actions, it's one of the first to really combine humanities and technology, where it's truly interdisciplinary, where we're funding research fellows to tackle the deep challenges between marrying human, the humanities, humanities perspective and the technological perspective. And every one of the fellows can has support in them multiple mentors from both sides of the disciplines to really enable them to make uh, impact. And it's really focusing in on looking at these fundamental challenges as we look at the technologies of the future. And I'm delighted to welcome four of our five uh, fellows here today for the discussion um, afterwards. And as I said, the, we, the plan is that we will have multiple um, of these tech talks between now and Christmas, really exploring specific issues. But today we wanted to keep it a little bit broader uh, and discuss more the ethical dimensions of human-centric AI. Um, we have three speakers today. Um, Professor Linda Hogan is the Chair of Economics uh, in the School of Religion, Theology and um, Peace Studies. We've got uh, Professor Adam Henske, uh, from philosophy from the um, University of Twente and we have Professor Dave Lewis from Computer Science Department Trinity College Dublin and from the ADAPT Centre. Um, I'm Professor Vinnie Wade, I'm the Chair of Computer Science but I'm also one of the directors of the Human Plus uh, programme along with uh, Professor Jane Almar who will be joining us later. Um, so just for introduction just to kind of set the context you know people are very familiar with the notion of um, human-centric uh, or AI, but the human-centric AI aspect has become really important in the last three or four years. So if we look at what we mean by human-centric AI, if we think about it before, a lot of AI was talking about replacement of humans or automation. And really what we've begun to look at AI is in a new way is saying, well, actually it really should be focusing in on empowering individuals, empowering the humans and society to engage in those digital experiences. And what that means is that all the um, potentials and capabilities of things like text analysis, natural language understanding, speech analysis, image, video, VR, virtual reality, and augmented reality, and robotics, that whole milieu of different technologies, which are all being driven by machine learning, driven by AI, uh, really, rather than the human being some sort of element in the center of that should actually be a participant and perhaps a peer or in control of the whole thing. And we want to look at those kind of roles that, that we see humans in the future. Because human, we must have control of it to feel part of it rather than be controlled completely, which should be inclusive. And we have to address the issues around accountability. So 
what we're looking at today is the ethical dimension of that. And as in the, in the talks later on uh, in the series, we look at different aspects of what we think about human-centric AI. So first, if I may introduce Professor Linda Hogan to, to talk a little bit about the ethical dimension. Just to begin by saying that um, the focus for the first decade of this discussion about uh, human-centric or ethical AI uh, really was about identifying the threats and the challenges associated with AI from an ethical perspective. So discussions and concerns about discrimination and bias, the issue of the end to privacy and, and all of these issues. Um, and one of the interesting things for me as I started to reflect on this particular session was to recognize that actually we are and have been discussing this for almost a decade now. So identifying the threats and challenges, and there have been many, articulating the values that should be encoded in AI design, and I'll talk a little about that, and I know that Adam will as well. We've also focused on developing some tools uh, like the ethics canvas that we um, uh, developed uh, in the ADAPT Center led by Dave, which uh, is a tool whereby designers can begin to use value sensitive design in their technology development. So tools that were specifically for those involved in technology development and also establishing and adopting national and international standards and frameworks. Uh, for trustworthy or ethical AI, and also professional engineering standards, which um, uh, the IEEE and uh, etc. So that has been the focus of the first decade. Um, in this context, of course, the EU has been um, uh, very important and to the fore. First, with the European Commission's 2018 communication that said that it would establish a commitment to ensure that an appropriate ethical and legal framework for AI would be the fundamental uh, starting point or orientation for uh, AI in uh, as it was developed and deployed in the European Union. And then in 2018, also it established the high level expert working group on AI, although the European Ethics Group had been working on that issue uh, a little beforehand. Then, of course, we've had the 2019 ethical guidelines for trustworthy AI, a standard setting <coughs> European and internationally. In 2021, the regulation establishing the harmonized rules for AI goes much more detailed, addressing the risk of specific uses of AI, identifying areas in the EU that the European Commission regarded as uh, areas of unacceptable risk for AI development and deployment, high risk, limited risk, and minimal risk. And of course now, and I'm sure I think Dave will probably discuss a little of this, we've got the ongoing work whereby the um, proposed AI Act is going through the, um, through the processes of the Commission. In addition, and in parallel, there uh, we have large number of a national AI strategies as well. Um, 24 different European countries have national AI strategies that reference ethical and human rights standards. Canada has, as many of you will know, a highly developed national AI strategy with a very strong ethical orientation, as do uh, 
Argentina, Uruguay, Colombia, all referencing human rights standards. The Australian Human Rights Commission has worked a lot on uh, ethical AI, and the US government uh, under President Obama and President Trump have developed plans, I suppose, rather than strategies that focus on ethics and human rights in the AI sphere. Uh, and countries in the Indo-Pacific region focus as much on human-centered approaches to AI and highlight some of the um, ethical challenges and making AI work for humans. So again, this commitment to uh, human-centric AI. And in addition to the European context, at the international level, there are complementary international initiatives, including those led by the UN. Um, uh, uh, mo most recently, the UN Human Rights Council has developed a core group that is focused on the human rights impacts of AI and uh, new technologies and advocates a human rights-based approach to AI. Uh, I think significantly, the 20 well, 2018, the OECD expert group was established on uh, AI and society. But the OECD 2019 principles on AI, I think, are very important. And that's uh, what you see there on the screen, because they've also adopted uh, the narrative of ethical and trustworthy uh, approaches to AI that respect human rights and democratic values. And very important because um, of, the, uh, of the inclusion of China in that declaration, although there were some modifications in the, the text that China adopted. And then uh, most recently, the 2021 UNESCO recommendations on the ethics of artificial intelligence, which was adopted by 193 members uh, of UNESCO uh, and um, uh, the associate members as well. And I'll talk a little about that just at the very end. The point is, I suppose, that we have a plethora now of frameworks, values and principles to guide ethical AI. And when you drill down among all of them, uh, there is actually also a remarkable consensus about what the, the values that should guide AI development and the principles that should be uh, should orient and manage the deployment of AI. The values human dignity, freedom or autonomy, which includes uh, specific freedoms, equality, human rights, and shared benefit or solidarity is the, the, the EU phrase that is equivalent to shared benefit, although it's obviously not identical. And the, these are made specific, more specific rather, through guiding principles of, and this is, I'm taking this from the EU document, but it's actually uh, very similar in, in, in other um, frameworks as well. Made specific for AI development through commitment to human agency and oversight, very important, technical robustness and safety, privacy and data governance, transparency, diversity, non-discrimination and fairness, societal and environmental well-being and accountability. But what does this mean? You know, um, where do we go from here? 
10 years has got us to this. And I think it's a remarkable um, uh, uh, achievement. Um, we've got a significant alignment of values, multiple frameworks, and still a very significant sort of gap between um, the kind of implementation of AI, ethical AI in development and probably more in deployment rather than development, but that's something that we can discuss. And also a very significant gap in terms of the, the popular population's confidence in the trustworthiness of the point of AI. So where do we go from here? And how can these ethical frameworks be translated into meaningful standards? Um, for design and regulation. I'm going to, to go a little more quickly now because there are just a couple of points that I want to make. Actually, I think that human rights, the, the evolution of human rights discourse is very instructive here. And I'm talking here about uh, proposing, I suppose, that we think about human rights as a model. Why do I say that? Well, Although we tend nowadays to focus on the legal dimensions of human rights norms, in fact, human rights is both a moral or ethical language and a legal language. It's actually the foundation of human rights law is in an ethical discourse, that set of ethical values and moral claims. Um, I'm not going to trace the history of it now and bore everybody, <laughs> but I, I, I'd be happy to at another stage. But, but one can see this. It began with a kind of conviction about human equality and dignity, then became more elaborate uh, and um, developed, I suppose, into concepts of civil and political rights, first of all, and then economic, social and cultural rights. Um, but I want to suggest that it's this dual orientation as a moral and a legal language that, that that's where much of its potency lies. And I think um, the core of this moral claim, uh, equal dignity, each person counts for one, no person counts for more than one, from which flow freedoms, protections, and entitlements, which are then given elaboration and legal force through intersecting, overlapping national, regional, and uh, um, international treaties and frameworks. The, the benefits, I think, um, are very briefly, it puts the person, that is the individual, right at the center of assessments of AI. So it rules out kind of trade-offs that allow fundamental elements of human dignity to be um, overstepped. Secondly, it outlines duties of governments and responsibilities of other actors, including businesses, not only in protecting and respecting human rights, but also in providing effective remedies against violations. Thirdly, it rests on a broad global consensus that's understood to be universally applicable. It's got substantive and procedural elements and uh, human rights are in, understood as interdependent, indivisible and inherent. And it strikes me that a great deal of this uh, 
is highly relevant for the next step for, uh, for, for human-centric AI. The Global Digital Policy Incubator at uh, Stanford has begun in uh, very recent years to focus on the benefits of an explicitly human rights-based approach to AI ethics. And I think, um, you know, uh, well, I suppose aligning with other work that I do, it seems to me that it's, a, it's, a, it's an important move. So to conclude, in my opinion, human rights-based and rights-respecting models of ethics could be have real value in actually accelerating the pace of development of ethical AI. I end here with this um, reference to the UNESCO um, negotiations because I was um, lucky enough to be involved with Barry O'Sullivan in these negotiations on behalf of the Irish government. And one of the, uh, so we created a, 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 a set of recommendations that um, 193 countries could buy into. They were complex and difficult, but what they showed was that they, there are multiple worldviews, countries with multiple worldviews, pluralist, explicitly secular, explicitly religious, could, could cohere around these. Those with difficult, different political arrangements and levels of political freedom. Uh, with the conviction and the aim and the determination to provide a universal framework of values and principles. And the first named value in that is respect, protection and promotion of human rights. Uh, so, to conclude, we already have broad agreement on values and principles. We already have frameworks, including the International Human Rights Legal Framework, which establishes responsibilities of state and non-state actors. So let's just use them to implement human-centric ethical AI. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, thanks very much for the invitation. Um, and obviously, uh, thanks as well for people for, uh, for listening. Hopefully, you'll listen through my whole talk. Um, my name is Adam Henschke. Um, as mentioned, I'm uh, with the philosophy section at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. I'm not very Dutch. I'm Australian with a German name, so a little bit confused on a range of levels. Um, I'm also someone who works in ethics and technology. So... Um, Linda's given a really good overview of human rights approaches that obviously has a bit of a legalistic um, frame to it. My approach is, is relevantly different um, because I work in kind of ethics, both in theory and, and applied ethics. And just to give a little bit of context that many of you might be familiar with this, but one way to think of ethics is to think of it as giving reasons for why we think something might be right or wrong, permissible, impermissible, or obligatory. Um, I like to make a bit of a distinction between morality and ethics. If we were walking down the street and someone was, say, setting fire to a cat, we might sit there and go, that's wrong. You shouldn't set fire to the cat. Me as an ethicist, I could then, you know, waste everyone's time by spending hours explaining just why setting fire to a cat is wrong. <laughs> um, in this sense, you know, it's probably a little bit too self-deprecating, but I see ethicists a lot like a four-year-old child who just sits there and constantly asks, but why, but why, but why? So if we think human rights are important, you know, ethicists would go, well, what do you mean by that? Why are human rights important? What are human rights? And, you know, again, we're just like an annoying four-year-old. Um, my approach to ethics is also quite pluralistic. Um, Linda gave a really nice list of a bunch of different ethical values that are involved in human-centric AI. And as a pluralist, I kind of endorse that approach. I think 
it's there's a danger of boiling things down to one simple reason. We lose a whole lot of the detail and ethics loses its kind of guiding, guiding capacity in that sense. But then as a pluralist, we face the challenge of interaction between values. And you know, this is one of the arguments against pluralism. I don't think it's insurmountable, but it shows kind of how things can be complex. So to bring this to um, human-centric AI, um, what I thought I'd do is I'd, I'd touch on uh, the uh, at least one approach to ethics by design in AI, the Sienna project. Um, and then I'm gonna look at transparency as one of the, the values that they see as important and then show you how transparency complicates things. So the Sienna project was a project that was headed by some of my colleagues here at the University of Twente and uh, suggested this ethics by design approach to AI. In their, their research, they presented kind of six main values that underpin um, kind of AI or ethics for AI. They say that there's human agency, privacy and data governance, fairness, well-being, and so this could be understood as individual, social and or environmental, accountability and oversight, and finally transparency. And so this tracks pretty similarly to some of the lists that uh, Linda had put forward as well. So there's a lot of agreement um, in these spaces about, okay, here's a, here's a bunch of values that are really important. And so what I wanna look at um, in, the, in the time that I've got left today is a quick look at the notion of transparency and how the idea of transparency, I guess, has, has either evolved or, or developed in the past five to 10 years and what that means for ethics and, and human-centric AI. Um, so transparency has been a major focus for technological development in AI. I remember when I first started looking at some of the ethics and AI stuff, it was around 2015, 2016. Um, I was talking with some people, I think they were from Google or something like that, and they were saying how, you know, you've got these, these AI, particularly uh, certain forms of algorithms, which uh, lack any transparency. They're black boxes. We don't understand how they come out with their, their results. And it's like, Oh, that doesn't make any sense. They explained a little bit of the technology to me. And I was like, oh, that's that's really interesting. You know, if we can't actually find out how those how those decisions were come to or how they came to those decisions, there's a, a whole lot of ethical issues associated with that. And so a lot of interest, both technologically and I guess in terms of policy and, and ethics spaces, has been driving towards more transparent AI. But as the technology has developed and allows kind of increased transparency, at least in certain forms, we may find that other values become more important or the relationships between these values becomes more complicated. So when we think of transparency, um, I wanna make a little bit of a, a clarification here. Um, I'm thinking of it in a wider sense than just explicability. And so I might be getting some of the, let's say the, Technological terminology, I might be using it a little bit, a little bit idiosyncratically here, but when I think of explicability, that's where I'm thinking about how the algorithm works. That's the black box stuff. Can we explain how this algorithm has come to this uh, result or, or outcome or output? Transparency, however, is a little bit of a wider thing, at least the way I think of it. Explicability is part of it, but transparency would also include things like information on machine learning libraries, how they were sourced, who sourced them, um, and perhaps even statements on quality of the data. You know, is this data reliable? How much credence do we have that this data attracts the world and these sorts of things? That would be part of transparency, you know, as in a wider sense than explicability. We can also think of transparency as going to, and this is me being a little bit speculative here, um, going to known or likely outcomes when you're combining a certain machine, machine learning library and a given algorithm. So, if we want to have transparent AI, 
it would be useful to know, well, how's it actually going to work? What are the likely outcomes of it going to be? And note how this tracks to this uh, value of well-being, you know, individual, social, or environmental. If we want to take that value seriously, we need to have transparent AI, knowing, well, what are the likely outcomes of this AI? And I'm also going to say, I mean, this, this might be pretty um, plainly obvious, that transparency is necessary for any sensible accountability and oversight. Um, but there's also potential implications for privacy in data governance, fairness, and human agency, the other values that the Siena Project had identified. For instance, with privacy and data governance, there are likely to be privacy, uh, AI, and a lot of applications of AI are likely to be privacy protecting in terms of if the information that is being used, it comes from people. Often privacy is concerned when a person is the source of the information. But AI is less likely, or at least it's less clear how AI will protect people, uh, a person and people as a target of personal information. We've got issues in data governance, issues in ownership and the limits on access to machine learning libraries. Who owns these machine learning, uh, machine learning libraries? Is it the company? Is it the people who develop them? And or is it the people who provided the information in the first place? A number of people now are, I guess, more critical of companies like Facebook and Twitter, or at least Facebook, who have made billions of dollars off the back of other people's information. There seems to be a bit of an unfairness issue there about the property rights and ownership over that information. So this is pointing to some of the issues that might arise when we have more transparent um, AI, who has uh, property rights over that, that information and should they have property rights over that? We've got issues in terms of fairness. Should machine learning libraries and or algorithms make their biases known? You know, again, this is one of the been one of the biggest discussions in and around AI, uh, problems of bias. So should any applications make their biases known in advance? On the one hand, yes, you want to make it clear how this set of technologies might produce unequal or arguably unethical outcomes. But on the other hand, it might mean that people can or will shop around for machine learning libraries and or algorithms that are more likely to produce an outcome that they want. And note here how the well-being and transparency relationship suggests that we need to know these outcomes as much as possible. Um, we might also want to know if uh, a person um, has uh, bad or risky intentions. So here it's not simply a problem of AI, but things like automation bias, et cetera, make it more of a worry about how this information could be used, who could be using it, and in what ways would they be using uh, AI. And in a way, transparency can increase the risks of that because if I'm maliciously motivated and I go, ah, actually this library and or this algorithm, they're probably gonna uh, produce results that suggest, I don't know, people like Adam are seen as the smartest people in the room. Um, I'm gonna choose that, that you know, kind of buy that off the shelf sort of thing. That could then produce a whole bunch of outcomes that favor me in an unequal or unfair way. And then there's a final issue here of human agency a whole range of human agency issues. But as AI becomes more transparent, we're increasing the responsibility of those designing, developing, using, and procuring AI. When things were opaque, there was problems here, but there was at least some level of plausible deniability. But now that things become more transparent, this assignment of responsibility is gonna be shifting somewhat. And this makes me think of some of the dual use challenges. A few years ago, I looked at work on dual use research in biological sciences. And here, uh, this is the worry that uh, when a technology can be used for both good and evil purposes, such as if I was to do research into smallpox, I could then potentially recreate smallpox and that could be good to help us develop new vaccines, or someone could get that information and use it as a, you know, a, a biological weapon. 
And so the dual use dilemma generally holds that researchers hold some responsibility for the misuse of others uh, arising from their research. And so then the question here is, what is the responsibility for designers and developers who develop an AI product that can likely and easily be used for malicious purposes? So I was thinking one example here would be deepfakes. If you can, you know, if you're developing an AI application that can easily um, create deepfakes, deepfakes being, you know, uh, maybe it's an actor who's put on Adam's face here and it's using Adam's voice. I can convince you that Adam has said these things much more easily than I would have otherwise. Um, if you're developing a product that can really, really easily, you know, provide deepfakes to people, and you anticipate that those deepfakes could be used for malicious or at least uh, socially problematic purposes, what responsibility do you have as a designer, as a developer, um, and even as a user for the the, the likely negative outcomes of that application? Um, and so this comes back to the transparency stuff again, because as we see more, uh, as we get more understanding of how AI might be used in its applications and contexts, we're probably going to see more potential risks and challenges coming from that. And then we've got this issue of um, human agency, who do we hold accountable and in what ways are they going to be held to account? So that's me done uh, for my talk um, and happy to, to have questions uh, after the final talk. Thank you. Grand. So, yeah, so I'm coming at this a uh, little bit more from the uh, uh, the technical viewpoint. I spend a, a lot of my time um, uh, engaging in uh, international standards. So the uh, uh, organization uh, called JTC1, Joint Technical Committee 1, which is a combination of uh, ISO and IC, two of the big sort of tech uh, uh, standards bodies. And in around sort of 2017, so after this sort of debate, I think on your timeline, it started fairly, fairly early on. Um, you know, they resolved that there was going to be a need for standardization around AI, set up a, a committee. Ireland was actually very active in, in establishing that committee. And, and we hosted, I think, the, the first sort of plenaries every six months. The first one was in um, Beijing, the second one was in Silicon Valley, and the third one was uh, across the road here, here in, in Dublin. You know, so we, we've been very uh, uh, much engaged in that, you know, especially through the uh, through the Adapt Centre, and um, Ireland actually uh, provides the convener for uh, this number of working groups, or the working group on trustworthy AI, which is where issues of sort of ethics materializes, uh, was originally from, from ADAPT, now doing the same job for a lot more money for Huawei. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, still contact, contact him on a, on a weekly basis. So I, I want to sort of give a little bit of that, of that context and sort of use that as a framing to say, well, you know, in, in this world of standardization, which is now sort of coinciding with, with regulations in, in this area, and particularly uh, the EU AI Act, how does all of that come together? Um, which one works better? It's that one, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think so. Well, this one, oh. am I in the right place? Maybe it needs to be in... Um, uh, oh, there, there we go. Yeah. So, so, I think the first thing when we, we you know, we do do some work here. I'm on a couple of committees that have looked at issues around sort of AI ethics, but it tends to get subsumed in headings, and they get used a bit interchangeably, but, you know, trustworthiness or responsible AI are, are two big headings. And one of the things we established very uh, early on when we were discussing this in, in the ISA committees is, you know, they were very used to, from a sort of software engineering framing point of view, think talking about sort of the qualities of a system. So, you know, 
uh, you know, issues like, is it transparent? You know, uh, it, 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 you know, is it is it reliable? Is it is it robust? Adding to that, is it is it trustworthy? And I think one of the things we we brought to that uh, very early on, well, that's sort of insufficient when you're getting you're sort of bleeding into these areas of of broader ethical concern because you know saying that something is ethic, uh, trustworthy or not or transparent or not actually is a much more uh, specific concern. You have to ask the question: Well, who is being trustworthy to whom about what? And so all of these characteristics, you actually have to uh, base around that question, which then means you have to start figuring out who the whom's and the who's are, okay? And, uh, and you know, in, in, in our own work, we, uh, you know, we, we break down this in terms of, well, you know, within AI, we have a few sort of roles that are fairly well articulated. I mean, you know, there's variations exactly on the, on the legal definitions, but we, have people who provide data that are used to uh, develop AI models. So there's people who develop those models. Those models then get put into applications and those applications get uh, 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 used, okay? And OECD pretty much articulates this sort, sort of uh, uh, approach. And we sort of regard this as, you know, this is the value chain. People doing that are getting value. They're volunteering, you know, sometimes with more freedom than others, but, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're participating in this, in this value chain. But when we come to talk about these issues of ethics, especially when we're trying to sort of standardize them, so we're trying to come up with terms and concepts and processes that can be used within an organization, we need to understand what the, the societal context is that we're working within. So you know, where does our, our value chain sit? And we need to understand, what, therefore, what are the sort of the, if you like, the interfaces and standards. We always talk about interoperability and interfaces. So, you know, what 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 are the uh, the interfaces between this value chain and society? And you know, I, I see this basically. In the, there's, there's a couple of places where this occurs. One is typically we work when we talk about technology and the law in a sort of a uh, a sphere of uh, co-regulation. So there's responsibilities both within companies who are in the value chain and getting commercial benefit or, or some other organizational benefit and the people outside of the organization who, who may oversee it. So oversight has some level of authorities and there's different models for how those uh, uh, how those interact with each other. So you can have, you know, obviously hierarchical boards of governors, ethics committees, et cetera, et cetera, within organizations. Outside, you can have regulators, parliamentarians, possibly even the press, you know, people who are providing oversight on a technology as it, as it evolves. And on the other side of things, we, we need to sort of think a little bit more broadly. And you mentioned the ethics canvas. That's one of the things we do there is trying to sort of engender people who are on that sort of technological development track to think a little bit more broadly. And we sometimes refer to having the, you know, the moral imagination to think about who can be impacted by your decisions beyond what we usually train them to do, which is focus on, on the customers. Um, you know, so again, there can be people who, are, who could be affected who are inside the value chain, including workers and, and data subjects, and then people who are outside the value chain who had, have, you know, not volunteered to be involved in this at all, but their, their lives are affected. You're walking down the road and a Tesla or an auto runs you over, you know, you're affected. So. <laughs> So, you know, we, we can use this, and we have been using this as a bit of framing, and then we're interested in what, you know, again, because, you know, standardization, we were interested in what information is exchanging, uh, uh, you know, how, how do we communicate unambiguously? Um, you know, we, we're looking at between the oversight authorities and the people who are affected, what are the signals that are transmitted that engender, engender trust? 
And also there are interactions which, you know, using a sort of software engineering term of affordances is what do oversight uh, authorities offer uh, uh, affected stakeholders and things that they can do? You know, can they complain? Can they sue someone? Can they register a complaint? You know, et cetera. So, you know, we use this, uh, you know, when we're looking both in the sort of standards domain, but also looking at that interaction between, between sort of the, the technical word where standards lives and the, um, uh, the, the world of regulations and, and, uh, and legislation. And we can sort of use this to sort of try and compare a little bit what these different frameworks can do. So this is, I'm not gonna go through this, but this is a little bit of our analysis of, of uh, you know, when you look at the AI Act, how does it overlay onto this model? What are the sort of the concepts and responsibilities are brought in? What are the sort of the modes of communications uh, uh, that, are, that are involved there? And, you know, where do things like fundamental rights uh, uh, play a role? And again, I won't go through that in a lot of detail, but one of the things that the, the AI Act does, okay, and it's really interesting to look at that sort of history of lots of principles that were developed, especially in the EU, they had the high level expert group, they had their uh, uh, set of principles, but actually when the AI Act that was sort of gonna build on that came out, it sort of mentions it in the preamble, but it doesn't really implement any of that, okay? What it does, it uses an existing uh, legislative framework. Uh, so it's called the new legislative framework, which is used for product safety across Europe, which, you know, sets out things like what is the, what is the sort of quality mechanisms that should be done? It doesn't set out what those quality mechanisms, but it says you need a standard to tell you what the quality uh, mechanisms is. And I think part of the reason for that is we have a lot of that stuff already for things like medical devices, levels of lead in children's toys and things like that. It's the same mechanism and they've applied that uh, uh, to, to AI. And what that allows us to do is then start looking, well, what other standards do we have there? So it's things like uh, social responsibility standards that starts perhaps breaking down the different type of stakeholders and relationships that an organization does. So the focus goes on, goes from the whole system when we go to standards about what should an organization do and how can they do that in a reliable way that could hopefully get a, some sort of conformance stamp. Okay, so we can, you know, we enter a world of standardization where this stuff's well established, being sort of to a level thought through, not specifically for AI, but there's stuff, there's lots of stuff that uh, that we reuse. Again, technical people love reusing it, and that includes human rights, you know, so it sort of gets thrown in. Okay, and then you start to go, okay, so how do we do that bit then? And again, that's where in standards we, we really, you know, technical people really start, you know, something. Like, okay, we, we go and refer to, to uh, you know, the, the uh, EU, uh, or it's not the European Charter uh, of Fundamental Rights, but actually this takes this legislative mechanism, which is based around uh, health and safety, into a completely new area that does go into issues of, of, of ethics and, and obviously, you know, grounded in, in fundamental rights. So, Easier said than done, I would say. I always talk about that they have these three little words, you know, health, safety, and fundamental rights. <laughs> Simples, you know. And and also, what's interesting there is this isn't a continuation of establishing principles because though it talks about it's there to protect fundamental rights, the actual mechanism is checking that you're not contravening any existing regulation that enforces those rights, okay? So, so that's the sort of, you know, that sort of, if you like, almost like deductive logical reasoning. They say, okay, we are our principles and we'll work, work it through to a, a conclusion. You actually don't have the freedom to do that. You're now working in 
a very, very complex landscape where you've got all these other regulations that suddenly you need to know about, which, which is very challenging. So I think just to wrap up, you know, we're in this place where suddenly the complexity of what we need to consider goes sort of beyond, uh, you know, sort of a, an ethical sort of reasoning approach. And we have to look at all of these other legislations uh, that are out there. And I, and I, you know, just sort of flagging really, you know, the way I see this moving, you know, we can see the sort of discussion of ethics in practice in Europe in this regulatory domain is really starting to move towards a, a question of the legislative gaps, you know, being able to talk about principles and application of them in general is going to stop working and we're going to have to start looking at these things. I think there's dangers there. It's very complex, both legally and technically. So it very favor, very much favors a sort of a, a legislative uh, technocratic approach, which is great for big companies because they're good at doing that. You know, they're making claim a bit, but they're very good at doing that. But it does freeze out a lot of other people. Okay, so SMEs are going to struggle. Uh, civil society actors are, are going to struggle. So I think, if, you know, given that this is happening, like the, the landscape sort of changing a bit with this, with this legislation. But we do need to still be looking at, at these principles and say, well, you know, we're not using them to generate the rules, but we do need to use them to, you know, mobilize the sort of the democratic and the, the legal and the political processes uh that we're you know that we need to do to uh, try and find the problems and, and overcome that so you know just wrap up we, we see a lot of papers and sessions and conferences that talk about you know ai ethics from principles to to practice and i think that isn't a path that's that could be followed you know we're we're hitting law now and and very complex and you know we have we were in an interesting session yesterday and uh, you know other conferences like cbdp very law heavy even even the lawyers are like people's heads are spinning about the number of different types of legislation that are interacting about this. So I, you know, I, I think a little bit, you know, my wrap up here is, you know, that path from principles practice, I don't think is going to generate the rules, but actually we should be sort of, if you like, diverting that, say, well, we actually need to, you know, leverage that language and actually make sure we're bringing this into the political and democratic sphere. So it's, you know, politicians, citizens, civil society groups who need to be sort of leveraging that with enough of the legal understanding to be able to make their points at these particular gaps as we sort of discover and emerge them. So I think it's getting more complicated, but we still need the principles because we need to have a language that isn't solely technocratic to try and address that. So a little bit of my feeling where things are going here. Thanks so much, Dave.